we're joined by a Brit who's doing really well abroad, um, Neil Cleverly. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How's yourself? Not bad, thank you. Not bad. Well, you've been high profile recently because uh, obviously you've been uh, the chief superintendent for the Olympic course there in Rio. Um, fantastic achievement. How was the experience for you? Well, uh, to say it would be the top of my list uh, would be an understatement. Obviously, yeah, um, not being well, golf not in the Olympics for over 100 years is, is quite a big deal for, for the turf industry or for the golf industry in general. So, yeah, it was uh, certainly a highlight of my career thus far. And um, stressful at times over the last three plus years, um, but we got through it and uh, obviously very happy that Justin Rose won the gold medal and uh, a bit biased there, but uh, it couldn't have been better. Neil, I mean, you, you took a, a swish of career, I think about 25 years ago. You came out of uh, the services, um, came into greenkeeping. Um, what made you make that change? Well, um, it was time for a change anyway. Uh, so leaving the military was, um, no, it was it was hard to uh, to go from one discipline to another, but discipline being the main factor uh, for this particular job because it is long hours, um, especially when you've got a novice crew or you have a crew that don't have any idea what turf means or construction means or golf in general. Uh, and this was no different, uh, having uh, served in different countries in the military and then serving with different companies, uh, building golf courses around the world in several different countries. You've been called, I think, um, by colleagues, the Indiana Jones of uh, the golf course industry, as well as a grass whisperer. Um, do you want to just fill in some of the, the places you've worked down the years? Yeah, well, uh, the Caribbean, Dominican Republic, uh, Mexico, Egypt, um, Mostly warm weather since uh, leaving uh, the UK uh, all those years ago, but uh, generally it's been uh, a bit like Bilbo Baggins, you know, it's the uh, incredible adventure, as the Hobbit would say, and uh, not that I feel like a Hobbit, but uh, it, uh, it's had its uh, benefits, as I said, uh, working with different cultures. It's great to learn a different language. Um, it's great to work with different people and get their opinions on uh, on uh, how we've achieved or what we've achieved uh, but it's been say like, 26 years uh, I've been doing this job now and 16 of those I've been traveling uh, so it's been quite an experience. So Neil uh, where did you start out where was your first greenkeeping role? It's a place called uh, West Hove Golf Club down in Sussex that was my first job uh, it was a Hawtrey design golf course and uh, private members some green fees uh, from there, I, I, I learned my uh, craft at local colleges, and then I went from uh, West Oak Golf Club to take up a uh, turf degree at Myersco College and uh, Lancashire University. And from there, I went to the US. And from the US, I had uh, two jobs, one in Florida and one in Hawaii. And from there, I went to the Caribbean, and then the rest is history. How did the role with... Uh the Olympics come about then? Were you approached? Did you apply for it? I was approached initially uh, by some friends of mine, some American friends that I met in the business. And uh, I was in the Caribbean at the time. And uh, they asked me, would I be interested in um, going to Brazil for, um, for the Olympic golf course? And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to take that job? Um, I came here. Uh, 
with no uh, preconceptions. I looked at the piece of land, I looked at the design, and I'd never worked with Gil Hans before, and it was, I like to work with different uh, uh, architects, and uh, Gil's uh, a gentleman. Uh, the, the guy knows his craft. Uh, we took it from uh, paper to uh, reality uh, in as short space of time as we could and allowed to. And uh, we ended up with a great golf course. So you, you've literally taken that from a blank piece of paper with the guy through to the construction. I think, were you involved three years before the, the Olympics? Correct, yeah. We started construction in 2013, uh, 2014, 2015 we grasped and um, prepared for the uh, Olympics uh, in that last 12 months. So we had a very short space of time to get grass grown and ready or playable and presentable for, for the Olympic Games. And it, to say it was, uh, it was stressful at times, uh, but people making it stressful, not the actual job being stressful, but other entities uh, making it unnecessarily stressful for a number of reasons. So that, that's the kind of whole environment and the background you were working with. I think the crew that you took on, none of them had any experience in uh, in golf or greenkeeping or turf management, did they? Yeah, I mean, that's correct. They, the, the thing is, the Brazil in itself, it's 200 plus million people and only about 25,000 play in the entire country. And most of those are private members. So you've got wealthy people that play golf, um, but golf hasn't transversed to street level and so this golf course having a uh, legacy of uh, public pay and play uh, in the first 18 hole uh, championship golf course built specifically for that purpose post the games uh, is now available to local people if they want to take the game up and now it's up to uh, the local Brazilian Golf Confederation to come up with a plan to encourage juniors, especially the juniors, and take them from the uh, from their local environment, um, if they're not in a privileged background, to bring them here, put them on the academy, put them on the driving range. We've got two fantastic uh, practice facilities here, other than the uh, the 18 hour golf course, and uh, they have the opportunity to train somebody here uh, in be a future champion. So, looking at your your crew, your team. Um... If you didn't have experience in, in the job itself, what were you looking for from these guys? Well, someone that would turn up uh, first thing in the morning for a start um, and stay the whole day, uh, no matter the weather. And I, I, I preached to them basically, look, these are long hours, this is a construction job, and then we go from construction to grassing, then we go from grassing to growing, and then we grow into preparation for a tournament. And all of that just went over their heads, obviously. So I had to feed them piecemeal, week by week, what we were doing, put it on whiteboards, draw it, explain it. And again, that was really no different from any other job that I'd been on in terms of explaining how the process of construction, growing and, and preparation works. So it was, I, I guess it's something that I like to do, otherwise I wouldn't have done it for this long. And uh, living out of a suitcase, um, it works both ways. I get enjoyment from it. I get enjoyment from doing the job and uh, I get enjoyment from watching the guys progressing through to what they know now. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody survives that entire uh, period of time because some drop off, some don't want to work those long hours and others um, have had enough of it, they want to move on. So it was, it, I think we probably went through, out of about 80 or 90 people, we ended up with 30. 
uh, over a period of three and a half years. Um, so, you know, 30% of the crew uh, was basically what we were looking at to keep on, and the rest just drifted off naturally anyway. So you've ended up with a, a crew there now of, of around 30, have you? Exactly. And they're all guys that have come through that experience with you? Most of them, uh, I'd say 50% of them have. Uh, the other 50% we had to fill in because people dropped off, men and women, not just men. So your, your support around that, uh, other than obviously your own knowledge, I think you were working quite closely with Ransoms uh, not long after you first seeded. I think they signed a, an exclusive deal. Yeah, Jacobson uh, were the main supplier of the equipment that we chose. Um, reasons being mainly uh, they have quality uh, equipment, uh, technically advanced now, and they have um, a backup here in Brazil, whereas Toro really didn't have a dealer per se. They had someone that would import, but his backup network wasn't as good as. Now, I've got a Toro irrigation system, uh, which is not exactly the same, obviously, as, as having to a golf course with machinery every day. So you rely on the irrigation system to, to provide water for the golf course. And sometimes that does break down, but um, we handle it. I've got a great irrigation tech and a couple actually and the rest get trained as per part of the of, of that crew and it's a learning curve for everybody whether it's Jacobson whether it's Toro whether it's irrigation whether it's machinery but Jacobson uh, did a did me a, a big favor when it came to the tournament prep um, equipment uh, the support equipment was outstanding uh, we had a few hiccups with getting it here through customs, etc., as you normally do. And again, people making it difficult for, for no other reasons, really. Uh, but eventually we got it here and we put it together and it worked perfectly, seamlessly. So in terms of kit, that, that covers that area. Um, I think you had some issues around the kind of chemicals and herbicides you could use and it was... It was quite limited in terms of what you could and couldn't use, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, to say it was limited, again, it's an understatement because of the uh, lack of understanding of what was required on the actual site. The site was a, was a, a degraded uh, sand-based area like you would do get the Greenbelt Surrey area or Royal Melbourne, the Australian uh, sandbelt uh, side of uh, Australia. They, uh, there was little knowledge as to what was required to maintain or provide uh, a golfing uh, environment. So when I put my budget together and the uh, products that are required, again, this is a non-golfing country per se compared to others that you would be familiar with. So their lack of equipment, their lack of knowledge, their lack of products for golf uh, was immense. So we had to work on a agricultural basis as to fill in the gaps from an, from from the agricultural industry to to uh, golf, and that's not unheard of. Sometimes you do that in, in even modern countries or, or first world countries. Um, you would have to do that anyway, and I had to do that in in several countries that I've been to. Um, so because also the site was uh, environmentally protected. We don't know who by, but they say the local government. Um, there was a lot of uh, animosity to us building the golf course in the first place. So they call it manifestation over here. We call them riots, we uh, demonstrations, things like that. Um, 
very much against the golf course being built and um, products being used uh, full stop. So I had uh, one product that I could use uh, for weed control and that really wasn't um, these organic control products really don't work and certainly don't work here. So to say that we picked somewhere in the region of a million plus weeds prior to growing would be understating the fact. It was an immense weed field when we started. And the demonstrations, the, the riots as you, you refer to them, that must have taken a, a chunk of time out of your schedule and time to prepare, surely? Well, yeah, because, you know, when you're trying to come into the property and you've got a line of people throwing eggs out and paint and all kinds of abuse being thrown at you, once you're in, you're in. Um, again, leaving was another issue that you had to deal with. And it, it's, I understand why they were doing it, um, but what I don't understand is why these guys weren't spoken to prior to that or during the fact by these sustainability people that were trying to help us to say, you know, come and see the golf course, see what they've achieved, to see what they've done to bring back fauna and flora. And that's exactly what we did. We turned it from a degraded site to an, an, an area of outstanding natural beauty, which included the, 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 the butterfly population, the insect population, the reptile population, I mean, the birds, that you you should see what we have out here now. Once we excavated and built two lakes, it was a wetland area anyway. So we've just increased the wet area and uh, obviously had built the golf course around it. Um, now we have uh, an abundance of animal and flora here compared to what it was from day one when we first started. I think somewhere, I read somewhere locally, it was 167% increase in vegetation of positive vegetation and, and, and animal life. So, you know, it just gets better every year. And, and you can see that by the migrating birds. You can see it by the reptiles are here. We have alligators, they call them jacareas. Um, we, they're full of, the lakes are full of them, so it's good. And it seems to me that the, the local state department uh, seem very proud of that because they're quite um, loud and proud about uh, telling the world about that from what I read on. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that because there was a lot of international uh, uh, bad feeling about what was being said about the golf course, obviously the RNA, the USGA, the PGA, uh, the IGF, a lot of uh, uh, GEO uh, up in Scotland, they certified the golf course as a environmentally protected area. And, and that's exactly what we did through construction. Uh, Gil Hans was very protective of his design and the design was very protective of the construction of the golf course. So we didn't unnecessarily destroy any areas that weren't already degraded. We just built around those areas, kept what we wanted to keep that was native and took out what was exotic or non-native. Now every place I've ever been to, you always have these non-native species that you've got to take out and you've got to deal with that. And that once we'd started taking that out, there was less, uh, invasive plant life choking out what the locals wanted to keep so we invited them several times to come and visit and they made one visit I think there was 20 or 30 of them we, we took them around the golf course all 18 holes and we showed them exactly what was achieved but you still don't I still don't know sitting right now whether they took that in as uh, an honest opinion or of what they saw or whether they were still unsure about what they were seeing. My personal opinion is 
because we didn't have any more uh, uh, demonstrations during the event or, or prior to the event, I think we were successful in showing these people that golf can uh, align itself with a sustainable environment. And uh, as you know, uh, sustainability in the environment has been very up there with golf construction for the last 15, 20 years. So, you know, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be part of our business and we have to deal with that. So, Neil, um, from what I'm hearing there is you've not really had any feedback from the community, only the, the officials, on how they feel about what's happened out there since the Olympics then. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's it, 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 a shame, um, but I think the politics got involved with this early on in the uh, construction stage because, unfortunately, politics in every country take effect on things that you're trying to get done, especially if it's a high-profile kind of uh, project. And this being a high-profile project because of the uh, the uh, extracurricular activity in terms of uh, apartment construction and uh, high-value uh, living uh, next to the golf course. So, you know, you put those two together and then you start to get uh, feedback from people uh, negative feedback from people because you, they say you're only doing it because of these, you know, $10 million apartments and things like that. Well, that's nothing to do with me. That's the golf course is my side of it. What they do in terms of construction for apartments or is someone else's business. But it did go hand in hand, unfortunately. So I'm kind of guessing, but I, I think I'm probably right here. When you first turned up, you know, three years before tee off for the, the Olympics, you must have thought, what the hell have I done? Uh, looking at um, maybe the the crew that you were getting and maybe some of the equipment you had. Three years later on, the last putt rolls in, Justin Rose picks up the gold. You must have been extremely satisfied and extremely proud of what you've done. And, and was that achievement something that you feel your team felt the same about? Yeah, I think uh, all of the above. Um, very proud of the crew, more so because uh, this was probably the most... Uh, contentious and difficult job that, I, that I've been on in 26 years and because of the high profile uh, situation of the Olympics being uh, uh, back in the, uh, the Olympics itself, uh, golf had, had to be successful. We had to be successful. There was no negativity from, from myself, from the crew in terms of getting it to where it needed to be. If there had been, the job would have only been that much more difficult. Now, aside from all the demonstrations and the politics and everybody else getting involved that shouldn't have been involved, um, we did as good a job as we could have done with the tools that we had and the knowledge that was 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 given. So to say, you know, there's, there's, there really is no huge definition other than extremely proud of the crew for what they achieved, for what, what they've learned what they do now still post the event as well and they are enjoying it what more importantly is because we worked as a team you know i use the acronym the acronym together everybody achieves more so with that in their minds being repeated every single week every time we had a meeting it sunk in eventually to most of them that this was an important deal and because they know more about golf now Remember, this is a soccer nation, okay? Brazil's a soccer nation, okay? They got beautiful women and they got great footballers. At the end of the day, they have now something, or these guys have something else that they can 
throw at people and say, look, we're the only greenkeeping crew in the last hundred years that have built a golf course for the Olympics and prepared it for the Olympics. From what I'm hearing here, one of the most enjoyable aspects seems to have been the fact that you've worked with that team and, and you've turned them into something that they weren't to start with. Would that be fair? Yeah, no, extremely fair. The, uh, I tried to uh, express to these guys that they are, they are about to embark on something that is historical, that nobody could ever take away from them once it's achieved. It's something that's going to be on maze, CVs, whatever they call it here, uh, to progress forward in their greenkeeping career. Now, I go back to what I said before, uh, saying that uh, this is a really non-golfing nation. It's more of a soccer nation. Uh, but we're trying to, you know, make things easier for uh, people to come and enjoy the golf. Now, saying that, we had a lot of non-golfers coming to watch the Olympics. Now, why is that? I kept asking the question. Nobody could really answer it other than, well, it's the Olympics. You know, everybody likes to watch different sports during the Olympics every single, every four years. I'm one of those. I like to watch the swimming. I like to watch table tennis, athletics especially. So at the end of the day, if golf was included as it was, then, I mean, we were maxed out on the final day, on most days, but especially on the men's final day and the ladies' final day, we were maxed out. We couldn't fit any more people into the, onto the golf course. And the, the atmosphere was electric around the stands, on the golf course itself, one to nut to 18, even on the driving range, people trying to get close to the professionals. And it was something, I've been on other tournaments as, as a volunteer and uh, prepared other golf courses, and this was something special to see non-golfers getting interested in another sport that they very rarely see on TV. There's not much golf shown on TV here either. So it was a, a special event. Neil, distinguished career. You've worked in a lot of different places. Obviously, this one in Rio has been, as you've already said, the highlight. Are you going to try and top that? Is there anything else on the agenda for you? Well, I think the uh, the only thing I could do to top that would be uh, be part of the Ryder Cup, I guess. Um, two separate events. The Ryder Cup is a team uh, event, as obviously you've just seen and, and uh, uh, been played out over the weekend. Uh, that's uh, the only. It's really the only thing that I could do to actually try and top this, if I wanted to use that that uh, analogy. I don't think you could ever top the Olympics or golf in the Olympics uh, with anything else. Uh, but that the only thing that comes to mind would be that. Um, as for what's next, uh, I'm going to try and make sure that this crew stay together uh, for at least the next couple of months. Um, my uh, contract runs out in uh, December. Uh, that was originally the uh, contract that I had. So I will be moving on at least by then. And uh, where? Uh, who knows? Pack the suitcase. Neil, you've had an adventure. You've worked in some far-flung places. You've worked abroad an awful lot. If you're going to give uh, groundsmen and greenkeepers from the UK one piece of advice if they want to apply their trade abroad, what would that be? Well, the first thing is don't be afraid of traveling. That's the first thing. If you're a, a novice at traveling, it can get a little overwhelming by the time you get to the property. You might end up on a property that the apartment is miles away or, or, or close by. Um, secondly, there's a number of things. Secondly, again, don't be afraid of the language barrier. Uh, most people do speak English, but it would help if you picked up some of the local language. They, they kind of gravitate to you if you understand more of their culture. And, and, and thirdly, again, understand their culture. Take some time to learn about their culture. 
uh, get into their their way of life and that pays dividends. Other things like be disciplined, work hard, uh, show them what you can do. Don't let them lead you, you lead them. Uh, there's a lot of things, there's a lot to be said for uh, uh, you, uh, English tenacity. If you can go in there with a, uh, a, a bulldog attitude where you can, you know, you never say no. If you can go in there and say, I can do that and believe that you can do that, then again, the job is a lot easier to do. You know, I've been to some places and I've, I've worked for some great people and I've worked for some awful people. But you don't know that. You can't pick and choose who you work for. If you want to choose to work overseas, then you've got to be prepared to uh, uh, be able to put out more than you would normally do on a daily basis. Once you learn how to do that, and once you're happy with that, and it, it becomes part of uh, your becomes second nature to your daily job in that foreign land, then you'll enjoy yourself a lot, lot more. And it's worth it because we're kind of enclosed in our own envelope uh, in the UK. A lot like the Americans, they don't never travel. A lot of them don't travel from the US. They're kind of closed in their own environment, and it's great in this business. This is a great business to be in. Um, Economically, right now it's not good and has been hasn't been for a number of years. But if you do uh, pack your suitcase and go somewhere, just make sure that you understand where you're going and put in the hours. Neil, that's a great way to end. I think. Thank you very much for your time today. I know it's been a busy day for you. Um, good luck with whatever the future might hold, and uh, we look forward to keeping up with your adventures.